the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Pletka. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Danny, what the hell is going on? Well, Mark, per our new tradition, we want to reach out to you, our listeners, and remind you that one of the ways that we know we're doing a good job is if you subscribe, if you rate us, if you listen, and of course, if you recommend us to your good friends, your family, your pets, and anybody else who has an account. So, Danny, what the hell is actually going on? So, Mark, what the hell is actually going on is we're going to talk today about freedom in the world, whether it's declining, whether it's growing, whether democracies are doing well, or whether they are, in fact, in retreat. And Whether Donald Trump is to blame. <laughs> That's right. And per <laughs> usual, of course, it'll all come back to you. It's all Donald Trump's fault. <laughs> Not if I can help it. <laughs> That's Mark's job here. So what we're going to be doing is talking about the report that Freedom House, a Washington institution, puts out every year called Freedom in the World. If one of the takeaways from the report is that the not-free world is getting not freer. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the right way to yeah. say it. And But I mean, I think anybody who actually puts their mind to it, as Freedom House does as a matter of their profession, but anyone who puts their mind to it would say, yeah, you know, Russia, not getting more democratic. China, not getting more democratic. The opposite. Right, exactly. Yeah. That, that in fact, places that are bad are getting badder. The axis of evil are... <laughs> we, we use big words here on the podcast, know, like better a... and worser. <laughs> I know, we're not... What can I say? We're not, we're not too bright here. But, uh, but I, I think it's interesting to see this because if you think about the post-World War II era, it really was a pretty straight line of going from, you know, really egregiously horrible... To better with, you know, the apogee. Excuse me, people. Mark, do you know oh, what the word apogee means? Oh, you had to throw an means? apogee in there because you were you started batter and <laughs> you had to make up for batter. The apogee, the <laughs> pinnacle, was the fall of the Berlin Wall and and the end of the Cold War. And I think a lot of us thought, you know, Frank Fukuyama, first among us, the one who wrote uh, just in the aftermath of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, wrote a now infamous book called The End of History, thought that, you know, good news was going to break out all over and that this was a moment in which democracy would continue to expand and that authoritarianism would continue to retreat, especially without the Soviet Union as a sponsor. And the answer is... That's not right. What they find is countries that suffered setbacks in 2019 outnumber those making gains by nearly two to one, marking the 14th consecutive year of a deterioration in global freedom. During this period, 25 of the world's 41 established democracies experienced net losses. What they do is they're measuring press freedom and, and uh, political freedom, political freedom you know, institutions. I get what they're trying to do. I think it has some flaws. I think it doesn't measure uh, economic freedom. Heritage actually puts out a report on economic freedom. The Heritage uh, Foundation. The, the Heritage think, Foundation, here in Washington another with think us. tank. And I think they started that because they saw this as a deficit in the Freedom House report, and so they wanted to fill that gap so yep. that we would take a look at both reports and have a more full picture. They're looking down in a very micro way at each of these countries at whether they're regressing, progressing versus a large overall trend. I think the overall trend in the world is without a doubt better. 
who have at least two or three times in this podcast quoted that great Brookings study, yes. which says that, you know, basically, if there was any time to be born in the world, coronavirus notwithstanding, yes. that now is the time when people are richest, healthiest, most prosperous, most safe, most secure, most without war. You know, those are yeah. all great things. And that's because of the expansion of political freedom around the world. In 1989, there were just 51 democracies and 105 autocracies in the world. In 2018, there were 99 democracies and just 80 autocracies. And people living in democracies have nearly doubled from 2.3 billion to 4.1 billion. And that makes up now makes up more than half of the people in the world. And of those remaining in autocracy, four out of five live in China. The advance of economic freedom, the advance of prosperity, the fact that for the first time in 2018 in the history of mankind, there were more people who were middle class or rich than there were people who were poor or on the verge of, of abject poverty. The overall picture, when we go up 20,000 feet to look at it, and it's good to go down yeah. lower and look at the details and where things are working, but if you look at the overall picture, things are getting a lot better. But I think there are factors here that are a little bit, well, I'm going to use another big word just because you challenged me, that, that are a little bit more inchoate. Uh, so yes, it's absolutely true. And I, I think that this really underscores the comment you made up front, which is that you cannot assess people's freedom without understanding their economic freedom. Because... It's great to be able to elect your leader, but if you can't go out and start a business, if you can't expect accountability, if you can't hope to prosper and do better than your, your parents have done, then you're really not getting a full picture. But I also think that some of these metrics don't appreciate the new leverage that the modern era has given to bad guys. So even as you rightly say that, that rogue leaders, that the anti-Democrats are more isolated than they ever were, that there are more people who are free... At the same time, the entry points into our systems are so much greater for them. Yes, I agree. And also the reality is, is that the global information age, the advance of technology, the fact that everyone has a computer in their hand, even in some of the poorest countries in the world, means that people have more access to information. I mean, one of the, the way totalitarian regimes in the, so in the Soviet model used to keep control of their populations and stay in power is they would create monopolies over different sectors of society. So they had a monopoly on in information. You could only get your information from Pravda or the, whatever the Communist Party paper is. They had a monopoly on the economy. You could only get a job from the state. They had a monopoly on culture. So like if you wanted to go to the theater or the movies, whatever it was, that was all through state approved. And then right. they had a monopoly on the use of force, right? And so those different monopolies, you know, over time, the internet and the access to information, we've now broken the monopoly on information. But at the same time, the same technologies that give people freedom right. uh, to information also get that allow China to have like facial recognition for every single person in the country. Right. And uh, to exploit, and our, exploit our First Amendment in order to insert what the president likes to call fake news mm -hmm. into our system. I mean, I bet that if we polled all of our listeners, every single person would be able to point to the fact that they saw something that was actually demonstrably a lie in the last 24 hours. I know I have. Sure. Anyway, we've totally gotten, totally gotten off topic. So anyway, we're talking about this. And I think that the one thing that y'all are going to hear is that's stuck in our craw is that somehow populism has become in the sort of popular liberal definitions that are used by Freedom House, populism has become anti-democratic. Not just Freedom House, I think. I think that's a right, right. perception. And of course, the truth is that, that while populism has become a dirty word, it still, it still represents in many ways you know, the will of the people. I do think one of the big flaws 
is this notion that somehow everything about populism is anti-democratic. Well, it's the opposite. It's ultra-democratic. You know, yeah, in some cases, mob rule. Well, okay, but I mean, what we're, what we're seeing is let's take the United States. We had a system where we had two establishments, the Democratic and Republican establishments, who were ignoring a large segment of the population, taking them for granted, telling them, so so I know you're losing all your manufacturing jobs and your communities are stuck in opioid abuse. But NAFTA. But, but NAFTA. Yeah, exactly. But free trade. And free trade is going to make everything better. And we'd say things like, well, there's no net job loss. Right. Well, yeah, if you're living in Lordstown, Ohio, there's, there's a, a net, net job, job loss for no, you. No, that, that's and, exactly and so, right. So, I mean, I think it's and, a and, testament but, to our democracy that these people were able to rise up, organize, and that a candidate came out and spoke for And I would say, by the way, 100% exactly the same about the Bernie bros. And then in Europe, you have the same thing where you have a lot of populist parties rising up. Well, why are these parties rising up? Because over the last four decades, they've consolidated power in the European Union, which is a fundamentally undemocratic institution because the power is all held by bureaucrats who don't answer to anybody. They would force these countries to join by having the same referendum over and over again until they got it right. Decisions that had been made locally about like what kind of cheese you can make and what kind of, you know, all these things about traditions and cultures going back hundreds of years were suddenly, they're suddenly told you can't have that mold in your cheese anymore. It's like, well, (laughs) sorry, uh, you know. I want that mold. Exactly. And so quite frankly, that's what happened with Brexit is that Brexit was a populist rebellion against centralized power. You know, Milton Friedman had a great quote in Capitalism Freedom that I always has always been a touchstone for me, which is that decisions should be made at the most local level. Because if I don't like the laws of my town, I can move to another town. If I don't like the laws of my state, I can move to another state. But if I don't like the laws of my country, where do I go in this world of jealous nations? And now when you take it to supranational, where do I go if I don't like the laws of the, of the supranational government? So what's happening is they concentrated too much power. And people have pushed back. And I think that's actually a sign of the vibrancy of democracy. Well, but Uh, there's been some overcorrection as well. But I mean, for example, the element of xenophobia. You know, what is the right line to draw between uh, a responsible system of immigration, which you and I both support and not just support, but are really enthusiastic about, and an irresponsible system of immigration in which people storm your borders, whether it's from Turkey and Greece or it's from Mexico or wherever it's from. There's a line there, and it certainly has been crossed. And this is one of the factors that that the folks at Freedom House look at. And, you know, I think you and I both think that they got that a little bit wrong, but we'll talk it through and and allow a little bit of pushback. But it's it's, at the end of the day, the reason that I know you and I both love having this conversation is because this is the right thing to talk about. Democracy in the world is what we want. You know, this is what the United States stands for. Even when we get the judgment wrong, and we do sometimes, I like the fact that we prioritize it. You know, our European friends and allies like to sneer at us, but the reality is that the United States has cared more and put more into democratizing the world than they have hands down. Including them. Right. Including them. <laughs> yeah. Including they'd, them. They'd always for speak sure. in German if it wasn't for us. <laughs> there you go. I've never heard that phrase before, Grandpa. Anyway, which brings us to our guest, Michael Abramowitz is the president of Freedom House. Before he joined Freedom House in February of 2017, he was the director of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Levine Institute for Holocaust Education. And he actually led the museum's genocide prevention efforts and oversaw a lot of its public education programs, which were just terrific. I know that I, I saw a lot of them. He Prior to that, he was the national editor and the White House correspondent for the Washington Post, but we won't hold that against him. It's a pleasure to have him here to talk about the Freedom in the World 2020 report. Here's our interview. 
So, Mike Abramowitz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we're really delighted, and we are eager to hear all about your annual report detailing freedom in the world. Tell us, start really simple, what is Freedom House? First of all, I'm really happy to be here with you guys and, uh, and appreciate the opportunity to come talk about Freedom House, which is my favorite subject. Freedom House is an 80-year-old organization. We were founded in 1941. We were one of the only... American organizations that was really about confronting the America First movement of the late 1930s and 40s. We were about trying to urge the United States uh, to get into the war against fascism, and we had uh, bipartisan support for that. And one of the cardinal elements of Freedom House is that we are both nonpartisan and we draw support from across the political aisle. We essentially do three things at Freedom House. One is we advocate for human rights and democracy with policymakers in the U.S. Congress, the executive branch, the U.N., and other places. We uh, support human rights defenders and activists around the world with various kinds of assistance and support in countries like Venezuela, Russia, other places. And then the thing that we're probably best known for is our annual survey of political rights and civil liberties. We've been doing this since the early 1970s. We rank every country in the world on a score of 0 to 100, and we group the countries into the free countries, green, the unfree countries that are purple, and the partially free countries that are yellow. And we've been tracking freedom for close to 50 years. Before you get into the specifics of the report, you've been tracking this for 50 years. How's freedom doing over the last 50 years? It's a great question. The basic story of our reports over the last 50 years is very simple. For the first 30 or 35 years, freedom was doing very well. Our report started uh, in 1973, a kind of a nadir. There was a communist bloc. The, you had Russia under communist tyranny. You had Eastern Europe. And uh, in 1974, starting with the democratization of Portugal, there was the so-called third wave of democratization, which Samuel Huntington identified. And really, over the next 35 years or so, there's a tremendous growth in the number of world's democracies and going up to about 120 or so. There's tremendous democratization. And, you know, the biggest inflection point was the fall of the Berlin Wall, which ushered in democracy in uh, Eastern Europe. And we thought perhaps eventually in Russia, although it hasn't quite turned out that way. So that was the first part of the story. And then the last 10 to 15 years has been what we call a democracy recession, that every year for the last... 14 years, there have been more countries that have had declines in their political rights and civil liberties than those that have had improvements. And that is happening all over the world. It's happening in every continent. We're still ahead of where we were 50 years ago, but we are definitely in a declining moment, and democracy is really on its back heels everywhere in the world. So let me ask you a, a really, really basic question. And, you know, you and Mark and I have actually known each other a really long time. I don't think I've ever asked you this question. How does Freedom House define freedom? I mean, it's one of those things that in so many ways must be in the eyes of the beholder. And yet you have somehow managed to put it with a metric. Right. We look, the fundamental thing that we measure is political rights and civil liberties. The one thing that our scores do not capture, which and we get some criticism from time to time, is kind of economic freedom. Of course, economic freedom is kind of in the eyes of the beholder, right? There's some people who think economic freedom is, you know, businesses being free of the government regulation. Others think it's, uh, you know, like Bernie Sanders, you know, everyone should have a right to a guaranteed income or something like that. 
So obviously the, the hallmark of that is having free and fair elections. You can't have a democracy without elections that are free and fair. But that's not the only metric that's important. You have to have freedom of expression. You have to have an independent press to hold the government accountable. You have to have freedom of association so that civil society can hold government you know, to account. So we look at 24 different indicators. Uh, we put them up on our website so everyone can see what they are. We rate how every country is doing against each of those metrics, and we come up with a score. That's basically how we look at freedom. Let's talk about this year's report. There were a couple of headlines. One of the things that when Mark and I were uh, just discussing our impressions before we got on air was China, which you guys have talked about and which we should cover a little more because I think the way I, I described it was that China was moving away from authoritarianism towards totalitarianism. And we've really seen that with the coronavirus and how that's been treated as well. But the other one that I think a lot of people will be shocked by and that doesn't weirdly just doesn't get a lot of attention in the United States despite its unbelievable size is India. Yes. So tell us, uh, what's the headline there? Well, I think there are a couple of big themes of the report this year. First of all, I think one theme that has not been quite captured in the report is that this is a year of hope in some ways. There were protests all over the world, three million people in Hong Kong, protests in Iraq, in Iran, Lebanon, uh, uh, Lebanon Bolivia. Uh, also, the country that I really think a lot about with this respect is Sudan, right, which, amazing. For, which for 30 years had been ruled by a by a brutal dictator who, in fact, had been indicted by the International Criminal Court for genocide in Darfur. And I never thought that, you know, things that would be good would happen in Sudan. But in fact, there was a relatively peaceful revolt in Sudan and Bashir maybe off to the International Criminal Court. So I do think that the first thing I think about with respect to 2019 is that it was a year of hope, that it really said to me that there are people around the world who believe in in freedom and human rights, this is not just a Western implant or a U.S. implant, that people generally want to live in a free society with free rights. That's a great headline, by the way, Mike, because you know one of the things that I hated most about the aftermath of the Iraq war was the suggestion that people really were better off living under a dictator like Saddam Hussein, and that whether you thought the Iraq war was a good thing or a bad thing, that the liberation of 25 million people was probably a good thing. And now to see that after half a million people have been, more than half a million people have been murdered in Syria, right? They stood up to the regime. They've paid, so many have paid the ultimate price. And yet people are still willing to stand up to the self-same oppressors that are on the ground in Syria. Uh, absolutely. And I think it's very dangerous for people to say that people don't want freedom because people do want freedom. And I think, again, in the Chinese context, we're talking about China, you look at two countries there, both Hong Kong, three million people hit the streets to, uh, to insist on freedom. And in fact, waving the American flag, some of them, and singing the Star Spangled Banner, that's inspiring to me as an American. Also Taiwan. Taiwan 30 years ago was a dictatorship. People didn't think that democracy could take root in kind of an Asian context. It's now one of the most vibrant democracies in the world. And the Taiwanese, you know, resisted a really a, a campaign of intimidation by, by Beijing to try to influence their election a few months ago. You've seen in some countries like Iran, where there is just an incredible push by the uh, ruling theocracy to repress people there. In Hong Kong, it's going to be interesting to see how that happens. Uh, 
I suspect that Xi Jinping, well, he has his hands full now with the coronavirus, but he may be kind of biding his time. I, you know, I'm not terrifically hopeful there. It's going to take a while for, these, uh, for this to play out, but I think that's a really important element of this year. I think a second element of this year that I think is kind of interesting is the fact that there's been kind of an attack on pluralism and an attack on uh, vulnerable groups. I mean, two big cases come to mind here. Uh, China, which uh, has packed off a, a million or so Uyghurs to uh, concentration camps. And s sadly, to come back to your point, Danny, is India. India, the world's most populous democracy, still a free country in the green, according to Freedom House. But there have been a number of steps taken by the Modi government to uh, attack Muslims. So that would be a second theme. And then I think the third theme, and again, India would be a case of this, is that we know that authoritarians, Russia, China, these countries are, are getting worse. But then you also have a situation in which established democracies also see their democratic norms and institutions, in our view, weakening. And it's an interesting stat, if I could give to you, out of the 41 strongest democracies that we've covered over this last 14 years of democratic recession, at least 25 of them have had setbacks in political rights and civil liberties of some kind, in rule of law, uh, in freedom of expression, academic freedom, in the different things that we measure, there's been a setback in, in democratic government. So that's sort of the third theme of this year's report. So I'm going I'm to challenge you on that in a moment. Sure. Um, but we want to start more with, with an area where I think we agree, which is one of the things that struck me about the report is how in the not free world, it's becoming more not free. That China, as you pointed out earlier, was the, there seemed to be a move from totalitarianism to authoritarianism. We're now slipping into authoritarian cult of personality a la Mao Zedong with, with Xi Jinping. Russia uh, is backsliding. Talk a little bit about how the not free world is going in the wrong direction, because that's a problem. Right. Well, the not free world is definitely going in the wrong direction. And I think the theme of the not free world is that they are also seeing it as in their interest to undermine democracies beyond their borders. That's been a theme in general that we've seen in Freedom House reports over the last couple of years, that countries like Russia and China are trying to provide the tools of repression to other countries. They're trying to undermine democratic norms and institutions in, in other countries. So think about the Russian interference in our election in 2016. They did that in Ukraine. They're doing that in other countries as well. Mm, throughout uh, Europe. Throughout Europe. So I think the belligerence of the authoritarian countries, I think, is a notable theme of, of, of this year's. And I think they really, I mean, I think Putin in particular, I mean, and Danny, you're, you're a real expert on this, but it, it seems to me that Putin is... Mark, did you hear that? Well, you just said yeah. I was a real expert on something. Yeah. Mark I'm, is always questioning I'm, my knowledge well, and expertise. And now my question is. <laughs> what I was going to say, is that, is that Putin, <laughs> Putin has really positioned himself as an enemy of democracy. And he really sees, you know, uh, he wants to sow chaos. And uh, I think, you know, that's part of his foreign policy. I want to pull on that thread a little bit because, first of all, I think that's a, a very astute observation. And I think it's something that we ought to be paying more attention to. It's not just that they're trying to undermine democracy. It, it is that Russia and China and others are trying to actually besmirch the good name of democracy. So you actually have you know, Chinese making the argument that democracy is actually a bad thing, you know, in and of itself, unstable, unpredictable. I want to talk about America in a minute and your sure. assessment of the of the United States. But yeah. before we do that, you, I want to 
go back to this, you know, the backsliding in within democracies. So one of the pieces of evidence you give for that is the rise of populist uh, parties across Europe, right? In Austria, in in other in Spain, Hungary, Box, Hungary, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that I agree with you that that is a sign of democratic backsliding. One of the issues in Europe has been problems that they have is that they, in adopting this supranational pan-European government, it's very unresponsive to popular will. The, the elected parliament has no power. It's all bureaucrats in Brussels who make all these decisions. And so as a result of that, there's been a lot of people who felt that their voices weren't being heard and that they're not being taken into account democratically in decisions that are being made that affect their lives. And so you had Brexit and you've had the rise of these parties. Isn't this a sign of the strength of democracy, that democracy is reasserting itself in the, in the face of sort of this supranational I, I would, bureaucracy? bureaucracy? I would certainly agree with you, Mark, that populism per se is in some ways a sign of the dynamism of democracy. I would never say, you know, at root, people have to have elections and elections have consequences. And I think there are a variety of different reasons which you can talk about that populist politicians have come into power. And a lot of it has to do with the failure of kind of traditional parties to deliver economic growth in places. So I agree with you that uh, there's some reason that populists have gotten stronger. I think the problem is, is that in certain countries, and I think Hungary is a good example, populists have gotten into power and have really attacked, you know, strong, important institutions of democracy, whether it's having a strong independent press, whether it's having an independent judiciary. So it's not that pop, I would never say, I mean, at Freedom House, you know, we don't take a position on the policy preferences of, of politicians, but we do strongly defend the indicators and the principles that are embedded in the things that we measure. I guess I would push back a little bit in the sense that the examples that were all given were right-wing populists. In fact, I mean, I think, you know, I happen to agree that I think that a lot of the populist parties that have arisen in Europe are actually ones that would like to roll back democratic gains. You know, Cinque Stelle in Italy, uh, I think of as a particularly loathsome example. Uh, La Lega, the same. But there are plenty of them. But then there's the Communist Party that has had a real resurgence also in Central Europe in the former Soviet bloc, where you've seen former communist officials also rising back up, and yet none of those get a mention. Is there? Do you, is that an oversight? Or I think if you look at our reports over the years, we call out left-wing populists, you know, like Venezuela. Venezuela, we haven't talked about. That's one of the worst countries in the world in terms of the erosion of democratic standards. Right. There's just no debate about it. You know, we are one of the strongest critics of Venezuela. We've We've been a strong critic of them for many years. We've been a strong critic, you know, of Cuba, of China, and then we're also a critic of of the actions, not of of, of right-wing populists. So I think if you look at the way that we've approached this, we have really tried to be even-handed on this. We are not an organization that only calls out certain forms of attacks on freedom. We call it across the board. People may not like it when we go after their particular favorite dictator, but, but we really do. <laughs> but we do, and we all have one, don't but, we? <laughs> but we do try to, to look at it in a, across the board. I want to ask you a question and to, to get into the, the issue where uh, I'm going to preclude Mark from leaping upon you and beating you about the head and shoulders. Wouldn't you? No, I wouldn't. He's so nice. He's such a nice person. So I want to ask you about the America section a little bit. You know, about every, the U.S.? Ev- yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody who everybody who listens to our podcast knows that Mark and I don't agree always about, uh, particularly about the Trump administration. But one area where I 
I suspect the three of us all agree is our country is stronger for immigration. Our country is stronger because it has been enriched by immigrants. But one of the, the things that you note in the report as a sign of a democratic attrition is our asylum policy. So I am second to no one in my belief that this is the right thing for America to do. But that system has been abused beyond compare by human traffickers, mostly coming through Central America, who are exploiting children, women, families, and our system. And I really, I don't think that standing up to those people is a sign of democratic attrition in our country. Why do you say it is? Okay. Number one, America is a free country. It's one of the strongest democracies in the world. Uh, it has uh, a robust free press. It has a robust rule of law tradition. There's just a lot that's strong from a democracy point of view in the United States. So I just think our critiques I'll get to, but I do think that's the context. We're not putting the United States like, you know, next to some of these countries, you know, that we've been talking about. That's point number one. Point number two is that we have been concerned about declines in the U.S. for some time. Uh, and, and one thing that I think your listeners should know is that we're not raiding a government. That's not what we're doing. We're looking at what we believe is the level of freedom that's experienced by people who live within a country or a territory. And so, you know, we have downgraded the U.S. for things that happened under Bush, under Obama, under Trump. But we have been concerned about the general trajectory of things uh, going in, a, in the wrong direction. And just on the immigration issue, Danny, that I would say is that it is obviously up to the President of the United States and the U.S. Congress to set the immigration levels and have the immigration policies that they think are appropriate. But they have to do it in, in you know, respecting you know, human rights and, and the rights of people. And that's where we think in that particular area, it's not the only thing, but that's, that's why we knocked the United States down in the area of asylum and by the way, we've, we've knocked down other countries as well in that area. It's not we're not like picking on the United States. Okay, but so let's go. I mean, I want to talk about Mark wants his shot too. Okay, I'm not going to take a shot. I'm doing this. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> you're, you're going to be criticized from the right in this report for some of the examples that you've chosen, and, okay. I, th and I think justifiably. The, Danny raised the asylum issue. The fact is, the vast majority of the people who are applying for asylum on the southern border, their claims are found not to be. Uh, when objectively asserted not actually to be asylum, proper asylum seekers. You've got a net number of people who are doing asylum claims, so other asylum, real refugees are getting screwed over because of this, uh, this assault on the border. Uh, you cite the fact that the president redirected funds from the Defense Department to construct a wall on the southern border as a sign of backsliding. I'm sorry, I don't think that open borders are a necessary prerequisite for freedom. And then one other, you, you talk about how in the administration, during the, in the impeachment probe, ordered uh, current and former administration officials to defy congressional subpoenas and documents for testimony, and their action threatened an important component of American democracy, including congressional oversight of the executive branch and the fairness of the integrity of, of electoral competition. The president of the United States has a right to invoke executive privilege, and the Congress can then go and take him to the courts and, and adjudicate it. It's not a sign of democratic backsliding for the president to appeal to Article Three, the judiciary. So why did you choose those as examples of democratic backsliding? It's, it just opens you up to unnecessary criticism. This is an overview of, I, th I think in general, I would urge your listeners to go to what you're quoting from is, and I'm not trying to evade your question, which I'll come to, but just, again, contextually, this is an overview essay. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also have for each country in the world, the United States included, we have 
an essay that looks at how the United States did against each one of the indicators that I mentioned earlier, the 24 different indicators. The fact of the matter is that for the last two years, the overall U.S. score has stayed the same. So we've not declined the United States. We're at number 86, is that? No, no, no. We have a score of 86 out of 100. Yeah. And uh, we are roughly like number 50. And, you know, we're basically a little bit, what's happened over the last eight or nine years, again, this predated Trump, is that we are lower, uh, we are lower than some of the peers to which we're often compared, you know, whether it's Germany, Great Britain. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we always try to give some sense of of what's going on here. But at the end of the day, we did not decline the United States. But I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, I got to say, you know, just looking at the neighborhood that we're in, mm-hmm. uh, when we look at, you know, how the United States matches up, by the way, the graphics in this are really helpful where you look at, you know, you sort of see who's clustered, who's declined the most. So I really commend the actual report to everybody, not just this conversation. You should go and read it. It's a real education. And even if you don't agree with some bits of it, it's still very well done. So we are at number 86. We are scored at 86. So not number 86. We're scored at 86. But Italy is it number 89? <laughs> you guys can't see my face. Um, let me just say that as somebody who, has, who pays attention to Italian politics with some enjoyment, what the hell? We rank lower than Italy? I would encourage you and your listeners to go look at, you know, we're very transparent about, right. about every one of the indicators, you know, why we score countries. I mean, you know, you can, you can always have fun looking at uh, specific countries, but the fact is we have a very rigorous and methodical process. We consult with hundreds of experts around the world. We really try hard to get it right. We do not willy-nilly make major changes in scores without real reasons for that. And we are very transparent about the reason that we score things the way they are. So I, I would encourage people to go look at the U.S. score in terms of some of these issues of asylum, and, and they'll explain why we do it that way. When, when I guess Mark and I first met you, you were a reporter at the Washington Post, but you then went to the Holocaust Museum. So you've really committed your life to these issues of openness and, and freedom and did amazing work at the Holocaust Museum that I, you know, I, for one, was a huge fan of. If you had to pick, sit back for a second and digest your report, and you had to pick a piece of counsel that you could give as a policy matter to the president of the United States, what would it be? Great question, Danny. So a couple things, just big picture things that I think about. I think that people do pay close attention to what happens in the United States. And the United States has outsized influence in the world because of, of who we are and our tradition. And, you know, what happens in the United States, even if you say that we are still a strong democracy, you know, but when politicians, I'm not going to point out to individuals, but when politicians, you know, use words like enemy of the people. Uh, no one's specific like in that. No one's specific. <laughs> <laughs> but by the way, we, you know, last year we found with Freedom of the Net, which is another report we do, that, you know, almost 20 other countries had passed laws cracking down on press freedom and internet rights in the name of fighting, quote unquote, fake news. So I just think that, you know, I understand why things happen in a political context here, but people outside do pay attention to us. That's just one point that you got to, I think, I think politicians of all kinds, you know, need to watch their words with that respect, because I think people do pay attention to that. I think the second thing that I think is kind of interesting is that one of the major, I think, drivers 
of all this is corruption. And the couldn't agree and more. really the looting of public coffers by politicians, both in authoritarian settings and in democracies. I think this is something that that fuels erosion of confidence in public institutions. And I think uh, it's often a leading indicator of where a country is going to be headed. I think you know it's not a surprise that you know when Russia actually in the mid 90s was a country that was partly free. It was not unfree. It was partly free. And we thought it could be moving, you know, under Yeltsin into a more open situation. But, you know, the, the oligarchs looted the country. Putin allowed them that. And I think that was a sign that of worse to come in Russia. So I think paying attention to corruption is really important. I think it's a fact that both drives declining confidence in democracy and also is the Achilles heel for autocrats, right? Like totally. these protests that we're talking about around the world, part of this is happening because uh, autocrats are seen to be corrupt. I mean, I, c- I couldn't agree with you on, more. On the I, press I, side, you're right. I don't agree with the president using the phrase enemy of the people yeah. to describe the press. But on the other hand, the press has a responsibility not to publish fake news. And there's a lot. there's been a lot of bias in the press against Donald Trump. So, I mean, one of the things Eric Wemple has been doing right now is going back and he's got a 12-part series now going back on all the people who, who promoted the Steele dossier as being something credible. And the media has just egg all over its face because they've reported this stuff as fact. They reported all these allegations at the pre- against the president that he was a Russian agent and he was a traitor and he had done all these things as real news. And then the Mueller report comes out and there was no conspiracy. And so I get that the president shouldn't be calling the press the enemy of the people. But if we're going to have in part of the measure of freedom in this country is responsible journalists who don't create openings for politicians to say those sorts of things. Isn't that a measure of how of our freedom is the responsibility of the press to actually be objective? Well, I would put it a different way, Mark. First of all, I'm a former journalist for 25 years, and so I fiercely defend the rights of the journalists to to report the facts. Let me come to bias in a second. I do think that one of the problems in our country is that I think the way things are supposed to work is that I do think, maybe this is a little bit Pollyannish, but I do think that the press plays an important role in a functioning democracy, that it is a check on official power. And uh, even though the press can make mistakes and and the wrong things, in the end, if you don't have a free press, then uh, government is really going to be endangered. And I will say that while we've been critical of different elements of U.S. democracy over the last 10 years, I do think that one thing that I'm very pleased about is I do think that the U.S. press system is very robust. As much as you complain about things and one complains about things, we're not throwing journalists in jail. You know, journalists are not being murdered. You can pretty much have a range of opinions about anything you want, you know, the right to left and so forth. You're you're right. But there was an an era that we went through in America when we had what was called the yellow press. And while, again, I am probably harder on Donald Trump because I think he has demeaned and coarsened our our discourse, although I think there are plenty of other people who, who hopped on very happily. Now, again, you don't want to get in the middle of this fight. That in and of itself... I don't want to call it a too free press because that's a weird construct, but that step over in from what you call reporting and we believe is reporting into editorializing is a thing that I think also can erode democracy. If you look at the polls, the credibility of the press is at a, at a very low point. Absolutely. And it's not because Donald Trump calls them the enemy of the people. It's, they brought a lot helps. of this on themselves. But they brought a lot of this on themselves. But he helps. And, it's, and I agree with you, a free press a credible press is vital to to a free society. 
by the way, you know, whatever one thinks about Donald Trump, you know, these attacks on the press and the effort to kind of delegitimize the press as an effect, you know, this has been going on for quite some time, you know, going back. I and mean, I always think, you know, this was a tactic of, 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 you know, Newt Gingrich, I think of, you know, he really, and by the way, the you know, the good old days were not always the good old days for the press. You know, there were a handful of major news outlets and people, you know, couldn't break in outside those handful of, and, and so I think one good thing about the last 10 years is proliferation of outlets and opportunities. But there is a, there is a sincere danger of fake news, not the kind of fake news the president talks about where news that he doesn't like is fake news, but there is fake news, you know, there's authentic disinformation that's planted by people. There's, you know, people putting false information out there. And uh, I think one of the great challenges for democracy going forward is is us being able to not infringe upon our First Amendment, which is so critical to the life of our country, but also try to avoid this. That's a perfect place to end because, you know, I, I think we, we both agree with you, is, is that you don't want our freedom to be used against us. And that is one of the things that we have seen and that is a real risk for us as we, you know, as we keep our doors open. <laughs> to Russian bots and, 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 and North Korean influences. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. We're really honored and, and well, no, congratulations. I'm really, I'm really appreciative of being on the podcast. I admire both of you and thank you for letting me be here. So first of all, I'm glad the Freedom House does this report. I think it's really important for us to measure these things. And, you know, I give them I give them a little bit of a pass on their uh, assessment of the United States because, in fact, they did not reduce our score. But I was I was really concerned reading the narrative that they put out. They counted the fact that we've reached agreements with some of the with Mexico and other countries to uh, have asylum seekers uh, stay out of country while they make their claims. Uh, they criticized uh, Trump for building a border wall. You know, this is, these are not declines in, in freedom. I mean, open borders are not a requirement for democracy. And then they needlessly waded into the whole impeachment situation by, you know, saying that basically Trump's denial of congressional subpoenas was somehow a sign that democracy was was declining. You know, the, the, that was weird. I, that was weird. And, you know, it's unnecessary. You, we'll, we'll put the link up with the transcript of this podcast so that you guys can look at it yourselves. But one of the things they have here is a picture of the Trump Zelensky cult. Now, I actually think and you and I disagree about this, Mark, since we have already argued about it today. I think that the Trump Zelensky call is, in fact, a predation against an attack on our our democracy. I think that Trump shouldn't have done that. I think it was wrong. Again, you know, you and I went back and forth on whether it was impeachable, and I think that that we was both the agree question. It was wrong. Okay, so we yeah. agree. We agree it was wrong, and I also think it, I don't think it's right for the president of our democracy to behave in that way. On the other hand. For Freedom House to weigh in on the question of subpoenas and whether, you know, an executive privilege just seems ridiculously sort of nitpicky and strange. And again, you guys are going to say, what do you mean? It was a huge issue. No, what I mean is it's an internal issue that was being adjudicated according to our Constitution. And as far as I'm concerned, our democracy is working when something is being adjudicated according to our Constitution. Absolutely. And, you know, all these things... If you care about refugees, like Freedom House does, like you do, like I do, you know, the fact is, is that there's only so many people in the bureaucracy that can adjudicate these refugee cases. And so if you have thousands of people coming over the border with false refugee claims oh. and false asylum claims, you know, we both agree that we should be taking more refugees from other places. We want more refugees, but we want legitimate refugees who I don't are know actually why the community. Qualified. I do not know why 
the community that cares about this, the human rights community, is not more outraged about the manipulation of, of our asylum laws. Because they're with Trump and they can't side with Trump yeah. on anything. Well, and they're, and they're, they yeah. are wrong because this is destroying it for people who actually need asylum, for Syrians who need our help, for you know Uyghurs, for North Koreans, for people who are genuinely fleeing from, you know, whether it's from Africa or from Latin America, wherever it's from, those people are being crowded out by traffickers. It's yeah. disgusting. And, and so, no, I, I think that was a big misstep on their part. We didn't talk enough about India, and we're at the end, and I know this is not the first thing on everybody's mind, but you know, we talk a ton about China on this podcast. We talk about a ton about China in our news. India is a country almost as large as China, 1.3 billion people. The decline in Indian democracy is real. Our colleague Sadanan Dume, who has a column in the Wall Street Journal, has written repeatedly about this, denying rights to Indian Muslims, suggesting that they are somehow lesser citizens. People need to remember that India is one of the largest Muslim countries in the world by virtue of being one of the largest countries in the world. To treat Muslims as if they're second-class citizens is, in fact, a reversal of India's truly secular democratic norms. Yeah. I mean, the the overall—don't disagree with that at all. And look, the overall trend is pretty good, and I think we can close on this, is that they found of 195 countries assessed, 83 or 43% were rated free. And 63, 32% were rated partly free, and then 49, 25% were not free. So that's a, basically a 75% free or partly free versus a, a quarter that are not free. The not We've free, done worse in the past. Yeah, absolutely. But if you look at the course of history, that that's pretty good. We should be careful to watch for backsliding and, and trends that are troubling. But overall, I stand by my earlier assessment on previous podcasts. If you had a choice of when to be born... <laughs> in all of the human history from the swamp to reaching the stars, and you didn't choose now, uh, you'd be insane. Well, I vote now. Until the coronavirus kills us all. <laughs> Thank you for that erudite closing note, Mark. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.